listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we thought we would talk about monologues. Often monologues can be very uh, helpful in a play in advancing the story. And also often they can be a real drag. And so we, <laughs> we thought we'd talk about what makes a good monologue and when we like to use them in plays um, and when they really don't do very much for the story. Um, and also mm. they have a major role in the actor's life because many an actor has had to use a monologue at an audition. Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend every playwright, if you have it, take an acting class. Oh, yeah. I think, because I really think that getting – one of the things I have to do in an acting class was look for a monologue. And we're mm-hmm. working that monologue for I don't know how many days or weeks trying to perfect that monologue. <laughs> and I remember – so in Iowa, I took an acting one class as a grad student because I was like, you know what? I just want to take an acting class to get into this minds of an actor as I write plays because I think it's helpful to be reminded of that. Yeah. And so I took Carol McFay's acting one class. And I remember one of the assignments was, you know, bring a monologue to class. And I brought like three, four monologues that I thought was like, really great like just beautifully written oh so literary so like oh magnificent and then, <laughs> all these details and alliterations I was just like thinking all that and I'm like oh she's gonna be so impressed with my choices of monologue and she just nixed all of them she's like no <laughs> and I was like what the and instead what she, I think what she did was like she found like a scene and she sort of just cut all those like dialogue from that Ah. from this one character to create like a little monologue and I remember just kind of like oh this is so different these other monologues that I had picked out the things I've noticed in common were just sort of they were like kind of rambling to nobody or they were reflecting on a specific moment in the past or like recollecting you know but it wasn't yeah. direct, present, uh, and towards directly towards a character or yeah. somebody. So, and that was the whole. And I know that was like a huge, like, like a moment, like a, a eureka moment for me. When in terms of like, what's a good mon, like, what is a good mon to an actor to help them? But also, like, when we were performing these monologues in front of the class, and I was, you know, hearing these monologues from the audience standpoint, I'm like, oh, that's a good mon. Like, whoa, that's so. It's like like just cutting it so directly. And- yeah, I think it was a big revelation to me. I can't remember the exact moment when I learned that you could do this, but mm-hmm. the idea that you could, as an actor, you know, for an audition, just turn a piece of dialogue into a monologue by cutting and moving things around. I mean, I, I think... When I was younger, I thought you had to use exactly what was on the page. And I think I thought that a good actor could make any piece of text compelling. And so I didn't think, I mean, I guess I thought about wanting to find a good monologue, but Mm -hmm. um, I also thought that 
that I don't know, I'd be like showing something about how good I was if I could find a monologue that maybe wasn't that active and make it active, which mm. now looking back on, I'm like, oh my God, that's so dumb. But <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I, I love how when I, oh my God, sort of sidetracking, but when I was like looking for monologues, I was just like flipping through a page. Oh, here's a large block of text. Yeah, just, exactly. Right. right. A, Even if it was monologue. not at all interesting and I I spent so many hours and hours and hours in the library trying to find monologues and just I just remember finding so many pieces that didn't work even if they you know because they were boring or you'd have to know something about the story in order for it really to be effective or they were too short or I couldn't cut them properly or they weren't the kind of character I wanted to play um I mean, ultimately, I was really not cut out to be an actor, but oh man, I just I, I just remember thinking there's got to be a better way. So, Sarah, I'm curious to know what you learned about playwriting from that acting class. How did it? Why do you think every playwright should take an acting class? I think the biggest takeaway for me was having a strong point of view. I think that when you're having an act, when you take an acting class and you're like in the mind of this one character, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, okay, how is this character getting from A to B to C to D or whatever in this scene here? And it helps me to sort of navigate in a way that when I was applying to writing, I was like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it was helping me to get track these characters a lot better. Like, I'm like, I'm going to, I, I kind of understand where her point of view is going, heading here. I know where he's going. I know where they're going. Like, kind of like, it helps me uh, really dissect it in a way because mm-hmm. I took an acting class because this like way of thinking, processing um, the text um, the way an actor would. So I think that was yeah. one of the big things for me that helped me with my writing. Um it's just following their point of views. And yeah, I think that's so true. You have to, cause I think a lot of writers start out, especially if they're coming from a background of writing fiction, they, you know, maybe don't think about, okay. Fiction writers, I'm about to make a broad generalization. So don't at me, <laughs> but, but I think especially young writers, um, they're not used to getting deep inside the mind of every single character in the way that you need to do as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Because when you're writing fiction, if you're really telling the story from one character's perspective or even three characters' perspective, mm-hmm. you're still not necessarily um, fully embodying each of those people in the way that on a stage with actors, the characters of a play will be fully embodied and fully realized. And even if they just have one line, there's still a whole human being in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in a, in a piece of fiction, they're kind of an abstraction, you know? Mm. Um, and so I agree. I think, I think an acting class can show you how 
every single role that you write is going to be a complete human being to the actor that is playing that character. And so you have to give them something to, to that feels real. Super helpful to have a good acting teacher too. <laughs> to, yeah. Who I think I really liked at having a, a really great teacher who really understood uh, how important the words is to the playwright. Like there was one time I there was one exercise. So I remember like taking um, a scene and then I, I kind of like, you know, I'm gonna put my own spin on this scene. I'm going to change some of these words. I'm going to like, the, <laughs> this, I mean, the scene took place in 1930s. Like it was written in the thirties, but I'm going to like modernize it. I'm going to start. So you're like, this person's dead. They don't, they care. don't care. And I'm like, I'm going to put in like, uh, I'm going to make some, cultural references that's in the now gonna like <laughs> social media twist in here you know what i'm gonna be real clever about this and then like and like i got some like i did it for the joke like i did it for the laughs and then at the end carol's like you know she gave me like notes and stuff and she's like but do not change that word like do not change that keep it as oh like and i was just like i was like oh geez okay all right i love it yeah no it didn't I appreciated that because I was like, <laughs> I sometimes I someone needs to just like talk at me. You know what I mean? Well, I, and and the flip side of that is, as a playwright, it teaches you that the actors are gonna really pay attention to what you write, mm-hmm. and and they're gonna. I mean, even if you just write something random in your play, the actor is going to get that and be like, oh, this is here for a reason. This was a decision that this playwright made Mm -hmm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even if it's random to you as the playwright, it's not going to feel random to the actor. I think that was one of the biggest things Mm -hmm. I've learned. Um, okay, well, so let's talk about the different kinds of monologues in a play. Like, I I can think of different reasons you might want to write a monologue okay. as part of a scene. Mm-hmm. So one reason, maybe the most boring reason, is to deliver some kind of background information or exposition. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like... That you know, like two thirds of the way through the play, the main character has a monologue that explains mm-hmm. something from their childhood and mm-hmm. and why they got to be the way they are. Right. And and somehow that piece of information helps us understand what's going to happen next. When you describe that, I immediately just think a character looking out to the window. And just talking <laughs> to themselves and like, right? You know, like, right? It just, it's hard to do this well, <laughs> I think. Um, and yet, it is done all the time. Mm-hmm. So, what are some other reasons that a playwright might put a monologue in a play besides the exposition one? I've also seen monologues like at the top of the show. You know, it's like a yes. and a character just standing there spotlight and almost like providing a context of what this is going to be, what you're about to see here. Yes. Um, doesn't like old, what is it? Old town, our town, our town. They do, doesn't it do that? There's like a, uh-huh. a state, yep, the stage manager. On and it was kind of like, uh, I was in that show. Who'd you play? I played Emily. I don't it was know. the, <laughs> there was the, um, 
community theater in DC when I was growing up. Anyway, that, but I digress. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, I think monologues at the top of the show can be really great. Mm. When you brought that up, my first thought was the monologue at the top of One Flea Spare by Naomi Wallace, mm. which is one of my favorite plays. Um, it's this girl, I think she's 12. Her name is Morse. And her first line is, what are you doing out of your grave? Oh. And she's, yeah. And, and she's, I don't remember every line of this monologue, but she's basically repeating back to the audience what has been said to her. And it's this very kind of ominous tone that introduces you into the world of the play where um, people are dying in the streets from the plague and people who don't have the plague are quarantined. Um, and I think that's an example of a, of a monologue that works really well at the top of the play. When does a monologue do, do you think it feels too long? Like you're like, Oh, okay. I feel like this character or like, I'm not saying because it's by minutes yeah. by time, but when does it feel like it's getting to you? Yeah. You know, okay, the, another play I'm thinking of now is The Thin Place by Lucas Nath, which I saw at the Humana Festival mm-hmm. this past year. And the whole, like, I would say, it, I don't know if this is accurate, but it felt like about 20 or 30 minutes at the beginning of the play is a woman sitting in a chair and delivering a monologue. Mm. And it was captivating. I mean, I did not feel bored once and it was long. Um, And Tony Kushner has a play like this too called Homebody Cobble where, which starts with like a 40 minute monologue or something. Mm. Um, I so I think, which I've never seen, I've only read that one, but I think what made the Lucas Nath one work so well is um, it was, it felt like the, like we were discovering things along with the character mm. and it wasn't, I mean, it didn't, I'm really kind of amazed because I don't know how he did this. It wasn't active in the way that we say a monologue should be active, like in that she was talking to another character and and the and the character herself was changing or or learning something um she was really she was just telling us a story um but it was so well written and it was about kind of the paranormal mm-hmm. um and it was about something it was about like a very moving experience for her and also he's so Lucas Nath is so good at building in suspense and anticipation that it worked um I I would need to go back and read it and figure out how he did that but um what do you think what do you think how when is it too long I think when you said discoveries uh when the character is discovering that's such an important keyword for me because then we're like discovering along the way like Mm -hmm. that I think that keeps me like on the edge of my seat when I watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think when I'm listening to the monologue and they're 
just repeating, regurgitating the information that we already know. Like you just, yeah, okay. Uh, like, yeah. You just said that about this character or this person or whatever. And we got that. What's new? What else is new? Like that. And then it just feels like it's going too long. When I'm, when as an audience member, I feel like I'm already like three steps ahead. I'm like, okay, well now you're right. going to kill her. Okay. We got it. Right. So like <laughs> then it just feels, then it's, um, Unless you as a playwright, you're able to take that expectation and then like twist mm-hmm. it and surprise us later. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in the monologue though, I'm like, okay, I know we've only been like 30 seconds in, but I'm already like looking at my my intermission paper. I'm like, when is it? <laughs> When's intermission? <laughs> um, I do think there's something about the beginning of a play that gives you a lot more freedom I remember Sherry Kramer when she came to talk to us um, talking about how, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, that at the beginning of the play, the audience is ready to go anywhere with you. Like that first 10 minutes, you're basically teaching them how to watch your play. And you have all the attention that you're ever going to have for the next one and a half to two and a half hours. And so um, I think an audience is much more accepting of a long monologue at the top of a show, maybe if it's done well, then they are, you know, halfway through the show. If they haven't been set up to expect that, then it's harder to make it work. But as I say this, I'm thinking of exceptions. So Mm. Boy, I don't know. Maybe it just, it all really comes down to like good writing. Mm-hmm. Do you write monologues often for your play? Um, I don't think so. But then when I see a really long monologue work really well, it makes me want to do that more. Do you? I think I think it's a good exercise when I'm like kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, I don't know what this character wants anymore, mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe I'll just spend some time in in the text, like in the play, write the monologue, just kind of randomly. And like, okay, she's gonna just talk for like a page here, <laughs> and, it'll, mm-hmm. and if anything comes out. Um, but yeah, I feel like, um. What are some other times I use a monologue in my own play? I feel like I also used it when. Hmm. Don't you have a monologue in Trick? Uh, I feel like I remember. I so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or a couple. Yeah. I think there's, I th- yes, it's more like a dual log. Like they both, mm. it's like, I think it was like two characters having both monologues. And you know, not at each other, but like towards the audience, like, That's kind of cool. at the same time. Yeah. And I was like balancing um, how they feel about each other without them knowing, but yeah, it's like yeah. on the stage. Um, I think there's something like that. But like a character on their own by themselves. Or what about? I also feel like. Yeah. Well, what about? Uh-huh. Do you, I mean, I'm trying to think of, of your plays because the other kind of monologue we haven't talked about yet is where one character is like, has a really strong emotion. Like they're really mad at another character and they just go on and on for an extended period of time to that Mm. other character about how mad they are or why they're, (laughs) you know, sad or something Mm -hmm. that has just happened in their life that they need to deliver that information to us and the other character. 
in the moment. Mm. Can you think mm. of anything like that? I'm trying to think. Because oh. you, you write a lot of very kind of quick, fun scenes. Oh, you know, I think there was a monologue in my other play, Korean Z Dog, <laughs> the mom. Oh it's my like God. the, the infamous play. She like looks, it's the whole thing I said, she looks like the character's looking out to the window. Uh-huh. And it's like, she did, she did exactly that. She was in the kitchen. She's yes. looking out to the window and she's about to, oh, spoiler alert. I don't, I don't you guys aren't going to read this play, but spoiler alert. <laughs> Maybe they will. <laughs> She's like getting ready to. It's hor- It's horrifying, but like I love this. Kill their play. family dog, yeah, and feed it to their her family. Like that was the whole reveal. Like, but it is in the title. It's all suggested. <laughs> dog. Um, but it's all suggested. But I'm, it's like kind of like I'm trying to tease it out, and then like so it happens. You're like, oh, gross. <laughs> yeah. When you wrote think- that, were you thinking? Oh, I'm gonna write a monologue now, or did it happen organically? Can you remember? I think it was. It almost feels like both because I wasn't. I feel like this entire time the mom never had a chance to share her story, like share her feelings, because mm-hmm. it was always being stomp- stomped on by the other characters. So I was like, here's this moment of just like it's just all her. This is her time to shine. Yeah. Like, this is going to be her moment here. And then, like, that's kind of the reason why. Um, so in that sense, it was, like, a that artistic choice. Yeah. But I, but I just didn't know how other – but also at the same time, I was, like, I didn't know any other way to do it. Like, how do I, like, share her deepest, darkest feelings right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and in that scene, she's yeah. alone on stage, right? There's nobody else there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And this was, like – 45 minutes of everyone just yelling at each other and yelling at her. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's such a powerful play. Um, well, it's done, Stan. It's never coming <laughs> back. <laughs> uh, never say never. Um, yeah, I think also the f- really fun thing for monologues that I guess now that I think about it, I do. I, I have a monologue like this in my play Daisy Violet, The Bitch Beast King, where you have a character um, talking to somebody about somebody else on stage who is silent. And I think you can have a lot of fun with that because it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily show up on the page, but then when you get in a room with actors, the characters character or characters who are silent, who are being spoken about, can do all kinds of things in that silence to register their discontent. Um, and, and of course this happens in Shakespeare all the time too, you know, where you have often women who are silent being spoken about and you're like, what is that person thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, then there are things like speeches or sermons where 
a character is speaking for an extended period of time, but it doesn't feel artificial because it's something that happens in real life when people give speeches or sermons. Hmm. So, or like, pres- oh, like presentations. Yeah. Or, well, I'm thinking of um, another Lucas Nath play, The Christians, which has these long, long monologues because it's about a church and these characters are giving sermons, but they're active because there's this rift in the church. And so these characters are trying to, I don't want to spoil too much, but you know, they're essentially uh, trying to get the congregation on their side. Um, So he's using the form of a sermon, but showing us something about that character. And, and then the audience is put in the position of having to decide whether this is a persuasive argument or not. This kind of reminds me of, um, or our conversation right now reminds me of an improv game. And I think I mentioned this on the show, Rants. Ooh, how, <laughs> that sounds fun. Like, like, if you do long form improv, which is about 30 to 40 minutes of improv sometimes, um, we like you start to show or like more traditional way. I don't know what's traditional anymore. Like improv has changed. I don't know. But in the beginning, you're like either as a as a group of players, you're ranting about something like angrily, like with passionate, like how we're talking about, you know, just like like oh, I hate traffic signs. And you just like rant on about traffic mm-hmm. signs, why you hate them. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that becomes like you pull themes from that monologue to drive the whole show oh. um so as like your as a group of your improv team you're like you're listening during the rant you're like listening to themes that might you're like okay i could do a scene off of uh the 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 time she like accidentally went through the traffic sign and got pulled over <laughs> and it was a bunny rabbit i don't know i'm just like making stuff up right now but something like that um like a rant or another way like i just remember is like is we have a guest on the show and it's like a storytelling, like they tell a story, like they like re- recollect and they're telling a story. Mm-hmm. But it's like moments because you don't know the story and then there's moments of surprise, like what they, they discovered in that moment or mm-hmm. that in that story, what happened to them. And there's like full of surprises that way and all these twists and turns. And you're like, oh my gosh. Um, cool. But yeah, monologues are interesting i don't know anyone who loves writing monologues though do you love it <laughs> i'm like i, I don't I'm no i don't i never sit down and i'm like i'm gonna write a standalone monologue but um but one time i had to write one for this now defunct playwriting competition called horse and cart oh it was called the playoffs the theater's called horse and cart and I and I we were given some kind of prompt. I think it was an object or something, and write a monologue that is its own standalone piece. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. So I don't know why I don't do that more often. And I also know because actors have told me that um, if you put monologues on your new play exchange page, they will 
look for them there and maybe download them and maybe use them in an audition, which is an hmm. easy way to get your writing out there into the world. So, yeah. Sweet. Well, that's our thoughts about monologues. We want to know what you think, listeners. Yeah. What do you think of them? Do you like them? Do you hate them? Do you write them all the time? Maybe all your plays is a, are all monologues. Maybe you're a solo performer and we didn't know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and also we would love to, if you have a favorite monologue from a play that you think is really, really good, um, tell us about it. And maybe we'll put together a list of like excellent mm-hmm. monologues that you people like. Um, and then we can share the wealth. Right. Let's uh, move on to glistens, the fair part of our show. Yeah. We just talk about nothing. (laughs) What's your glisten, Sarah? (sighs) My glisten, I guess when this episode gets released, it's been like a week since it passed. But (laughs) yesterday I went to like an improv or a podcast recording about improv uh, because uh, a teacher of mine was a guest on the show, and she, she's like, she's a granddaughter of Viola Spolin. Cool. Uh, she's Aretha Sills, and um, her father was one of the founding members of uh, founded Second City, a big Chicago comedy theater. So I got to, I saw her, saw them talking about improv and history of improv, where they think it's going, and it was just a. It's so crazy. My, it's just, I just thought about like how much time I spent in the world of improv and how, uh, like reading, studying improv, and it's also been like a hate love relationship with improv, like because there's so many bad improv I've done. But there are moments <laughs> of like really like fun, glorious moments, and, and I don't know. I just like I just kept reflecting on just how uh. It was a huge part of my adult life. Yeah. For some reason. I just like, I always go back to like, why, well, why did I even start improv? Like, why did I even jump into improv? Why did I even like it? And the thing they mentioned, and I was like, that I completely agreed with is that original, like the earliest um, improv done, like, back in the day it was it was all these through these games and it was all about play it was all about playing and mm. how us as adults I just don't feel like we play enough like yeah. we're just so busy scheduling using google cal or like there's no moments of play that when you're like here here come to the stage and play just yeah. play make believe make stuff up just play there's just something that I was just like oh how I missed that, but I still, it's like, it's stilled in me. And I I feel like I just try to like incorporate those, the values I've learned in improv into this kind of like in my regular life and sketch comedy and storytelling or whatever that I do. So I just like, so I guess what I'm saying is like, I, as much as like improv noise, the crap out of me, (laughs) like how I appreciate it, like it's shaped my like, understanding in life it just kind of was just my guiding light doesn't for my yeah, life or something you love improv yeah. i don't know anymore it's just like oh i think maybe you should write a book about improv no yeah and and it's too many of those it's 
Well, <laughs> it could be like your personal experience with improv. I think you have a lot to talk about. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Just Maybe you just, should write a play about improv. Just at me, people. If you want to know my improv, <laughs> at me. <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. Yeah. Um, at Sarah. At me. Uh, what's your glisten, Sam? Um, my glisten is I'm reading a novel right now with my students called Oil on Water. It's by a writer named Halan Habila from Nigeria. Um, he's in the U.S. Um, now. And it's about two journalists traveling up the Niger River Delta um, to find a woman who's been kidnapped. And mm. it really, I picked it for my class, which is environmental global literature, because it, um, it you know, it's well-written, it tells a story, and also it highlights the environmental destruction in Nigeria that the oil companies have inflicted over the past few decades, which is really appalling and shocking and um, it, it kind of incomprehensible to me that I didn't know more about the devastation and um anyway it's a beautiful novel and i recommend it and that's our show that's our show so listeners you know what to do now (laughs) follow us share us tell your friends about us keep listening and send us your thoughts we we've been getting some awesome thoughts and emails and it's been awesome we love it too love it we love it it really helps uh us keep this show fresh you know what i'm saying and feel like we're not so alone (laughs) Yeah. yeah all right have a good one